This is Growth Decoded to Go, a podcast from a show that helps you grow your business by figuring out the customer experience, one piece at a time. We do this to share our findings with you, wherever you are. Because this podcast is only the audio portion of the show, there might be some references to visuals. But don't fret, because we've included links to the video version of the show in the podcast description. All right, let's get into it. Ahoy there, Internet, and welcome back to Growth Decoded, a show about the customer experience and the stuff that makes the customer experience good. I'm your host, Ernie Santarelli, and this here is my potted pal, Plantasia. Right you are, Plantasia. We've got a great interview for you today with community builder, online education expert, and author, Alex Hillman. We talked about online courses, why so many of them are, well, bad, and how to make them better. So let's not waste any time and let's get into it. All right, I am now joined by Alex Hillman. Alex is a community builder and co-working pioneer, uh, having founded Indie Hall in 2006, which is by that marker, one of the oldest fully independent co-working communities in the world. Alex is also the author of The Tiny MBA and is a partner and business educator at Stacking the Bricks, where he teaches people with creative skills to succeed in the shift from selling their time to selling products instead. So Alex, welcome to Growth Decoded. Thanks for having me, Ernie. I, uh, congratulations on what might be the shortest and most succinct intro for <laughs> the, the sprawling work that that I'm involved in. So the, that was that was a lot of fun. I might add that to my resume. Thank you for the compliment. That's <laughs> I like that. Awesome. Um, so being a an expert in the world of online education, online courses. I'm not going to waste any time. Why do so many online courses, for lack of a better term, suck? It's true. Uh, and I feel like we're, we're living through a really interesting age of, of online courses and online education. There's more tools than I've seen in the last 15 years of doing what we do. Uh, and way more people creating online courses. But I think one of the, there's, a, there's a lot of reasons. And and first reason I want to say they a lot of them suck because people are lazy and aren't doing a very good job. I'm gonna assume that that's not who we're talking about here. The the audience listening to this podcast, people that care, they they're good at what they do and they want to actually help the people who are signing up for their courses also get good at what they do. Um, I think there's a bunch of other reasons, though, why online courses kind of fall apart. Um, and without pointing the finger too much at the software, I think a really good example is the fact that a lot of courseware is designed around uploading a bunch of videos and delivering that to a person. But even on the back end, you know, one of the most common metrics that I think is talked about in online courses is like course completion, right? And I think some of the better tools that have analytics to show you where people are maybe getting stuck in your course, all those kinds of things, they're also optimized for completion. And I think it's the wrong metric, right? Um, a lot of our students never complete our course and that they don't watch every video or they don't go to the, you know, through to the final episode, so to speak. This is not like a Netflix series. Um, the successful ones, though, actually put what they learn into action. Mm. And I think that it's a mix of the tools and people just kind of like 
repeating the mistakes or bad habits of, of what they see elsewhere and not realizing the damage they're doing. Uh, and that so many courses are built around delivering information, which is a good start, rather than creating a learning experience, which is the way Amy and I think about our work with Stacking the Bricks and 30 by 500, where the learning experience uh, is one where I want to get you to do the thing you just learned as quickly as possible. Start practicing that thing so that you actually get the results that you paid, you know, signed up for and paid for to do. So I think at the end of the day, I and mean, we could break it down to tactics and say, like, courses are, you know, you know, it's just a bunch of videos on a platform. Why couldn't that be on YouTube? Um, but I don't even think it's that simple. I think the core strategies that people are, are, are thinking about online learning almost as a a rudimentary adaptation of the way people think that they learned in terms of like going to school or whatever it is, where a teacher sat in front of the room, delivered a lecture, and then gave you homework and you went and did that homework on your own, right? right. When you bring learning online that way, you're kind of using the internet and its strengths. Um, I would say you're not using the internet and its strengths, right? The delivery of information is what it's good at. But um, if you're teaching, you know, pre-recorded lectures, but not using the internet as an opportunity to create a real tight feed feedback loop between you as an educator and the learner to figure out, well, when they watch the lesson, what do they understand, but also what don't they understand? Mm. What are they still stuck on and getting confused about? And I'd say, you know, maybe most importantly, what can you do to help them actually take the lesson that they just watched or the demo or the example, the screencast, can you get them to do it too? And, and that's the work that I think Amy and I have put into place over all the years, all the evolution of the courses that we created and why our courses um, stand out for a lot of our students, not just as you know, the thing that they teach, but for a lot of, a lot of folks tell us it's the best online course they've ever taken, not because they like the material, but because it actually helped them do the thing they signed up to do. Mm, I really like that distinction. Like, did it actually help them do the thing that they signed up to do? And, and I see it, I've seen this in a couple of different things. And, and now online courses is, is another one in conversations that I've had recently on this show is sort of like, we're looking at all of these different channels and all of these different vehicles of delivering information. And because there are so many, and because we see what is happening so often with other people and what they're doing, we sort of, like you said, just do it because it's what everyone else is doing. Like we're just going to put a bunch of videos on there. And it just seems like there's a lack of, of being deliberate about the particular channel that might make all of the difference, right? Are you are like, I've seen a lot of like content repurposing, which is, somehow become synonymous with take this thing and put it everywhere as opposed to take this thing or at least what makes it good and optimize it for each and every channel so is, is that kind of what we're looking at is it like the courses are just like the format is it a lack of being delivered like what is is it is it yeah. am i on the right track i think you're very much on the right track i can give you a really concrete example via a little bit of history of how like the people look at 30 by 500 today and for those who are unfamiliar i'm going to assume that's most of the folks listening 30 by 500 is a course that helps people with creative skills usually people who have some kind of service business or maybe you're in a job doing that that skill you know designers developers copywriters marketers things like that um 
we help them start making the transition to creating products with those skills so that they can decouple their time from money equation and, and be a little more scalable in that way. When we started teaching this, um, <laughs> to use your word deliberate, uh, I think we were making all the same mistakes everybody else made. We sat down and we made an outline of what are all the things people need to know. And we, in the, the original versions of our course, it was all written lessons. We basically made these like nice looking PDFs and we dripped these PDFs out over the course of, of many weeks. The original course was actually like a, almost like a semester long course. And we delivered them a mix of PDFs, uh, uh, but rather than emailing them through like a, a, a newsletter tool like your own, um, it was through initially some like really, really early rudimentary courseware that was like, I think a WordPress plugin, it was real bad. Um, but then we said, you know what, screw, instead of fighting with the software, let's just use a Google group, like an email discussion list. And the, the byproduct of what we wanted to create there was in, in addition to just like delivering the, the, the PDFs, the lessons themselves, we wanted to create an experience where people could then ask questions, share their notes. You know, if I'm asking you to go on the internet and one of our, our core skills is actually how to do research on your audience and go find out what their problems are, their challenges are, what are they complaining about? And you can use that in so many ways from marketing to the product creation itself. And it was only because we had this sort of online forum type interaction around each lesson that uh, we noticed that when we gave people the instruction, go on the, go find a forum or you, you, you know, other mailing list or whatever it is and learn and take notes, they'd come back and they'd say, I didn't see anything. And I'd say, well, you know, what, what, what kind of notes did you take? And I'm like, well, I, I I didn't take any notes. And it was only because we got to have that interaction that we realized, oh, our instruction, as kind of obvious as it sounds, and so many you know, marketers in particular have heard that advice before, go find people talking about the problems. We realized that even with the specific instruction and take notes that people, A, didn't know where to look, B, didn't know how to look, and C, including a bunch of people who had presumed took college courses and had to take notes, they didn't know how to take notes. Mm. And so a thing that was a single instruction in an entire six month long course became a core set of lessons. It's now the majority of our lessons is breaking it down into tiny little steps where you learn how to spot things, you learn how to make decisions, you learn how to kind of read between the lines, you learn what you're looking for by looking for it, but I have to give you kind of a, um, a constructed environment where you can have enough information to know kind of what the skill is supposed to look like, mm -hmm. but also be bad at it initially and still know you're headed in the right direction. Because when you're learning something new, most of the time you're going to suck at it. So I'd argue a lot of courses suck because the people creating them are new at them, but they never go through the refinement process to figure out, well, what mistakes am I making as a newbie teacher that aren't obvious to me because my students, I don't get to watch them learn, right? right. So um, that's sort of like a... a, 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 a if you jump into creating videos for your students and they're going doing that on their own time, I get the allure of that from a business and time wise, but you skip 
so much opportunity for you to learn as an instructor and for that sort of two-way dialogue to kind of open up your mind. You're like, oh, all this knowledge I take for granted is actually the value, not a you know high-level instruction of go do X, go do Y, but an entire system of how we think. And over the course of many iterations, uh, we went from that PDF version with the newsletter where people told us all the time they loved the information, but our implementation rate was abysmal. We had single digit implementation across hundreds of students. It was, it was like single, not single digit percentage, single digits. So fractions of a percentage from people who said they loved the material. And so through a, a bit of revision, we said, okay, what do we got to do to get people to actually do the thing, right? What, how do we watch them do the thing? And we made the shift from this sort of six month long course. It was very easy to drop off, not complete, you know, get frustrated, feel behind all of these things that I think are kind of an inherent part of the cohort based learning experience that people are popularizing today. But I haven't really seen anybody addressing these core problems that we experienced 15 years ago um, in the tools or the learning experiences themselves. People feeling behind is, is a big one. Um, the, the next version of the course, we actually went the complete opposite direction. We said, if what if we make this a live online boot camp? Two days, what can we teach you into like six hour days with breaks? Which by the way, is in hindsight, way too long um, in terms of like a single day of like sitting in front of your computer learning something. And it forced us to sort of drop everything that wasn't essential and kind of rethink what we were teaching and also how we taught it. And once we got it down to those bare essentials, um, Amy had actually gone to a workshop at a conference in New Zealand with uh, the, the, the person who ran the workshop. Her name is Kathy Sierra. Uh, in the mid-2000s to early 2010s, Kathy uh, was a, a leading voice in technical education. Uh, she and her partner had created the head-first programming series for O'Reilly Tech Publishing, which completely rethought how you would learn programming. Up until that point, programming books were roughly what we think of as programming books. <laughs> they really thought about it as a learn, like how does a book create a learning experience instead of teaching you functions and calls and blah, blah, like, like they, they really thought about it as a learning experience rather than a thing to deliver information. It was so popular, they ended up licensing the headfirst methodology to O'Reilly, Kathy became this sort of very popular uh, um, speaker and writer about learning design and creating uh, experiences for passionate users. If you go on the internet and search creating passionate users, Kathy Sierra, you'll find some of her old writing and videos, and they are some of the most influential on, on mine and Amy's career in general. And then at this particular point in time, Amy took a workshop with her and came back and said, I know what we need to do to fix 35500. And what we did was we started combining lessons and exercises where it wasn't just a, a lesson, now you go do it. But the, the real magic was we, before we did the lesson, we actually did like a mini exercise where let's say to go back to that example I was giving before, it's you know, go onto an internet forum or a, a, a news group or whatever it is and look for problems and take notes. Mm. We would give you that instruction. And as a student, we would actually give you a specific link to a forum. So we are all looking at the same thing. 
and say for five minutes, go read this and take notes about the problems you're seeing, the people that you're seeing talk about it. What do you see on the page in just five minutes? And people would come back from those five minutes. And in the chat room, we would ask them to share some of their notes. What did you notice? And people would say all kinds of things, but it was all over the place. Some people would notice the same things. People would notice that they noticed different things. And then we would launch into the lesson. The lesson was a pre-recorded video that showed Amy doing the exact same thing we had just told them to do, but with a specific style and approach and structure for the note-taking and for what they were looking for. Right. So they went from being kind of like, bad at it but that's okay like we kind of that, that we called them um we called them like habit breaker exercises where people who are especially people who are good at what they do often go into learning a new skill with all their old habits and the assumptions that they'll be instantly good at it right and because we kind of forced them to suck at it for five minutes they were very attentive to learn how to not suck at it and it created just enough of a knowledge gap where they were excited to close that gap. Um, the analogy we always used for that was, um, was a spark plug. If you think of a spark plug in a car, if the two pieces of metal are touching, there's no spark. If they're too far apart, there's no spark. But if there's just enough of a gap, you get the spark. And so our learning design goal was to create just enough of a spark uh, of a gap where the, where the spark could be created. Mm. So they're bad at it. They watch Amy be very good at it and show a, you know, a, a specific process. And then the last step is now you go do it again. Try and apply what you watched from an expert demo. And, and the transformation is, is basically instantaneous. Are they as good at, at Amy or I or somebody else who has a ton of practice? Of course not. But they feel that difference instantly. Yeah. And that feedback loop alone completely changed the dynamic of, dynamic of the course, the dynamic and the rate at which people implemented those lessons and started seeing successes. And it massively heightened the feedback loop for us to realize what was still missing. What were the things that even if we gave them all the information and all of the structure and all of the support that they would still freak out they'd still get upset or concerned or anxious. These are real feelings that people go through when they're learning. And when we finally got to, in 2015, create the version of the course that people you know, are still taking today, we've obviously added to and improved, but the, the, the core of it is, is still there. What we did was we went through, at that point, we ran the boot camp for about three and a half years between four and five times a year. So let's call it 20 to 25 times. We went through and we hired a research assistant to help us pull down all of the chat transcripts and code them so that we could understand what are the lessons where people have their breakthrough moments, where they go, they have the light bulb, they, they suddenly everything makes sense. Right. And then we also had them code them to like, where are people most stressed out, freaked out, feeling bad about themselves and why? What language do they use as a learner? And when we sat down to create the pre-recorded video and exercise version that people can sign up for today, it has, it's built on all of the knowledge and lessons that we learned, not just from the knowledge that we were trying to transfer to the learner, but from how they showed us. We got to watch them go through the learning process. We could design an entire learning experience that 
the information has not changed. It's been improved. Um, but the, the real difference is that somebody's going through a lesson, they're trying it for the first time, and they're running into a problem. We can anticipate that problem because hundreds of people had that problem and we watched them. And we watched the words they used. We watched how they reacted. And we could anticipate that and build that into the pre-recorded at your own pace course. And so people go through it and they feel comforted because in the moment where they're about to freak out, we go, if you're feeling this way, you're okay. Right. It's totally normal as to be expected. Here's what you're going to do instead. Yeah. It completely changes the learning experience. For them. But we could not have done that had we not gone through all of these other like we call it like high resolution experiences where we could watch them in high definition and, and really understand the experiences that they were going through as a learner. There's so, I love, thank you for that. I mean, like that step-by-step, step, like there's so much, talk about being deliberate, honestly, but there are so many things in there that you said that like just reminded me of other things. And so the, the arrangement of, the information and being deliberate about all of that and creating those spark plug moments. The spark plug moments reminded me, do you play golf at all? I don't. Okay. So when you are starting to play golf and honestly, even years into playing golf, you're really bad. Like most new things, it's a very unnatural <laughs> movement. It's a hard game, whatever, but there's usually one to two moments per nine holes. When you play one to two shots that you hit, that is like, Oh, I'm going to come back and do this again. And it sort of reminded me of that spark plug moment because it's like, you're bad at the thing. And then you see someone really good do the thing and you see the seeds of where you were at. Like you immediately yeah. apply like where, Oh, I, okay. So I did, here's where I was wrong. Or here's that little thing that I could tweak to make it better. And it sort of just makes you want to keep coming back. Um, it's, I, I love that you kind of operationalized and, and implemented that as part of the learning experience. So like how, I mean, you, you outlined a few different ways to do it, but is it really like in the arrangement of the information and like the way that you deliver it? And like, in terms of here's like a video that you're going to watch of us doing the thing versus here's where you're going to do the thing, like all these different engagement or styles of learning or styles of delivering information. Like, is that how, how big of a piece is like the arrangement of it all? I think it's, and they're, they're all interconnected, right? I think that you, and it's all, like progression. So I think if you were to try and jump into an arrangement before you had actually do quite a bit of high touch interaction with your students, mm. you're likely to get it wrong a bunch of times and then feel like the arrangement's wrong when in fact, it's not that the arrangement's wrong. It's that there's a bunch of things that are invisible to you. Mm. It's actually missing pieces. So I'd say, you know, if I were to, from all of those things, what had the biggest effect? It was spending time watching our students learn and having the fastest feedback loop possible. Um, again, online people are really trending towards this like self-guided learning. And again, I love it both from a, from a business perspective and in some cases from a learner perspective to be able to like take that class on my own time from an accessibility perspective. You know, when we were running the boot camps, people from other time zones would really struggle. We had people staying up in the middle of the night from Australia and Malaysia to take these courses. You should not have to do that people with families that couldn't like block out a weekend you shouldn't have to do that tons of advantages to the asynchronous learning right but if you're trying to be good at being an educator on the internet i think the biggest mistake you can make is to jump straight to async learning before you've done a good amount of synchronous learning teach some live workshops right is the easiest thing you can do get 10 or 15 
people into a Zoom call. You don't need any fancy courseware. Get 10 or 15 people into a Zoom call for two hours and try and teach them how to do a part of the thing that you want to teach. You're going to learn way more in those two hours than you could across all of the tweaking and fiddling of the arrangement of the pieces. I think the arrangement of the pieces comes later when you start thinking about, okay, now that I've got now that I know what people actually need to learn, is there a progression mm. that will influence their momentum? I think that's where the arrangement really matters. What you teach in the order, people often think about it in the order that the thing you're trying to teach happens, right? Um, this is the thing you do first, so I teach you that first. Makes logical sense. But a lot of the times, that first thing might be the hardest thing to really understand without more context, right? Or it might be the thing with the least reward, right? right? Yeah. And so I think sometimes as you're thinking about the arrangement of the lessons, and again, I think this is the thing, you, it, it's way more important that you do this after you get the, the high resolution understanding of the problems that people have while they're learning. Where arrangement matters is when you can put the lessons in an order where you're giving them wins as early as possible and with the highest degree of possibility, right? Where if you do this thing, even if you're bad at it, you'll feel that sense of progress like you were just describing with the golf thing. And so that might not be the first step. It might not be the last step. It might actually, in some cases, make sense to drop them into the middle of a process. And if that's the place where they're going to get a sense of context and understanding, and also the sooner you can get them a win as an educator, the more they trust you when you start asking them to do things where the win simply takes longer because the feedback loop doesn't exist. You just kind of have to trust that if I taught you the thing that was easy to get the win, that the thing that takes longer and I tell you is supposed to take longer that it's not you that's doing anything wrong. It's just time. Right. Um, so, you know, I think Amy and I both come from, from technology and you're teaching like programming skills, for instance, feedback loop is super fast. The program tells you that it's broken basically instantly. Right. Yeah. But if you're teaching something that doesn't have that, you're teaching marketing or copywriting or CRO or, or email funnels, or I'm trying to think of other things that you know, the folks that listen to this show are, are either trying to teach or trying to learn. Those are things where learning how it works is not the same as learning it, doing it, and seeing your work be successful. And that last piece is often the slowest part, which can be very, very frustrating for the learner. And so I think having things where the, the, the feedback loop of success for the learner being front-loaded so that they're more likely to trust you as a teacher when you say this part, you just kind of got to do it and keep doing it and it will work. A, that has to be true, right? <laughs> you can't lie your way out of that one. Um, but I think you have to earn the ability as a, as a teacher to ask people to trust that if they do the thing that they're bad at, that they'll get better at it or, and or that the result will happen. It just takes time. Yeah. I love that that idea of getting them wins as early as possible, like the the, the tiny wins. I mean, it's 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 like hacking the psychology of what makes a person continue to do a thing over and over again. I, I love that. It's a super important idea. And it makes all of the sense in the world that it might not be the chronological order of what actually has to happen for the ultimate it, goal of the, the course. 
And I'll tell you what, it almost never is. Right. We, when I said we've rewritten 30 by 500 so many times, I mentioned that like six month long version. Yeah. We wrote that the first time we wrote it chronologically. Here's what you're going to do on day one. It was everything leading up to launch day so that on launch day, your product has customers, right? Oh, I've lost your sound for a second. Um, there we go. You're back. Oh, sorry about that. It looks like. Sorry about that. Um, no, okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll start over so you can edit that sure. out. Um, so, you know, that, that version of the 30 by 500 that we taught as like the six month long course that all the written material, we, the first version of that was linear and chronological. It was from the day that you decided you wanted to start to launch day, having buy, buying customers, paying customers and everything you needed to do in that order, which again, kind of, kind of makes sense, but in, in hindsight, wasn't working. The next version, we basically inverted the process. We took the entire process and we started people at the end and kind of walked them backwards. And it actually worked better, right? Because yeah. people saw the destination, they saw pieces of the destination coming into focus, and then they kind of landed at the end of the course at the starting place. It worked better than the, than the chronological one, but it had some inherent flaws in the feedback loops and, and the things that people could actually do at that stage. And that was when we realized that the arrangement was probably not linear at all. And we had to kind of like turn the thing inside out. And when you turn a thing that's six months long inside out, you get lost. And that was a big motivation to scrunch it down to that two day thing, because just the number of places for things to be out of order and feel like you were chronologically not making progress didn't matter because by the end of two days, everything had a chance to come into, into focus and make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes sense um, just in itself. And it's interesting that it's so, when you said it, it's like one of those things that's like, oh, that's been in front of me the whole time, right? Like, I, of course. Most of it of is. Of Most course. But then it's is. like, why would you ever think about it that way? And until you've kind of broken it down and dissected it the way you have, you, you wouldn't. And now a word from our sponsor. With ActiveCampaign, you can run marketing automations as well as send one-to-one -one emails and transactional messages. Securing your communications in one place and providing a seamless experience for your customers, no matter who is sending it. And with our flexible plans, you can buy what you need to get started without having to pay for everything up front. Try it for free at ActiveCampaign.com. Learning online and learning in person are two very different things. And if you try to recreate an in-person experience in an online setting, it likely won't work. Now, on the flip side, if you try to recreate an online learning experience in real life setting, that probably won't work either. Because each of them have different attributes, different strengths, different weaknesses and advantages. You need to use those. And you also need to arrange information in ways that are more conducive to the situation that you're in. It's similar to the content repurposing conversations that we've had in a past episode with Ryan Stewart. You can't just cut and paste your content from one platform to another and expect it to work. Because each channel, each social media platform, they all have different unwritten rules and expectations that govern the way people consume and engage with content. Now, I can hear your objections. This isn't completely true across the board, right? You're right, some things do translate well. For example, 
TikTok videos performed pretty well as Instagram Reels, but that's also because Instagram Reels were developed as an alternative to TikTok. Instagram image posts don't translate to TikTok at all. Also, there's this weird trend lately where people are taking screenshots of their own tweets and posting them on LinkedIn with some pretty high degrees of success. I don't know why that's a thing, but hey, it's working and it is. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. The important thing to note is that it's not an instance of, well, it worked over here, so it'll work over there as well. Let's go back to Alex to hear some more. So one thing that's interesting and like a parallel that I see between online courses and then webinars or digital events, which is a thing that I've specialized in for the last couple of years is it, during the pandemic, they kind of underwent what I've been calling a renaissance, right? Where it was like, oh, we've, we still need to get in front of people and we need to get in front of people in larger groups and in-person right. events, conferences, et cetera, are out. What can we do? Oh, wait, webinars are here and online courses are here. It's sort of like the QR code where it was like, yeah, whatever. That's sort of a thing that like we don't really need. And then when you needed it, you were like, oh, thank God we have this. And, uh -huh. and because there was such an explosion of courses and digital events and of course, QR code usage, um, <laughs> I feel like the quality of events sort of suffered in some ways just because mm. there were so many of them and people didn't really know what they were doing and they kind of got in and they just thought there's like this, if we build it, they will come sort of mentality that comes with a lot of this stuff. Yep. Um, but I do think that like, they're not going away now. And, and in some ways they've changed and the ways that we've kind of explored and you see the cream kind of rise to the top, but like, what are the big benefits of this renaissance as you see them? It's like people really trying to get, get online and become online learners. Like, are there benefits? Are there downfalls, pitfalls? Like, what do you, what do you see there? I mean, the, the big thing that comes to mind in terms of benefits is, is access uh, between people who could not be in a place previously can now learn from anywhere. People who have a wide range of, of, everything from like physical mental conditions that make it difficult to be in a place at a specific time or for a specific amount of time having really high quality knowledge be available to those folks is a big deal i think the economics of online education make it easier to bring down costs and make things cost effective, you know, 30 by 500 is a pretty expensive course, but once we got it running and when you're, when you're teaching 30 students in a boot camp, there's only so much you can do, but once we got it to the point where it could be self-serve and we have a successful platform and lots of student successes, we're able to turn around and introduce scholarship programs and parity purchasing power, where now like coming up on 40% of our students are either buying through parity purchasing power, so they get a discount that is sort of adjusted for their local earning and currency, um, as well as we created a scholarship for black creators uh, and other folks uh, from other black and brown communities who are economically disadvantaged historically, where we can provide not just the you know the the access but also the encouragement to say we want you in this community we want your skills we also want your perspective and those are things that from an economic perspective are really hard when you're teaching in physical spaces or you know with limited headcount and so online courses giving us the sort of economic reality where, where we can do that for more people is it feels really incredible um and we're getting to see the benefits of it. You know, we're now in like year two of those programs and we're really seeing it like the folks two years later having done the work and it affecting their lives in, in pretty incredible ways. Um, 
And then the last like big benefit I think is we're getting knowledge and people like for teachers, you know, I hesitate to say things like anyone can be a teacher. Um, I think with work, anyone who wants to be can be. This is a learnable set of skills like anything else. Amy and I have joked for a long time, we should create a course course, um, huh. not on how to like build course businesses, but how to do the kind of stuff that we're talking about. And I think that the the really interesting thing that we're right at the very beginning of is if you think of historically education and who was at the front of the room teaching, were usually people who came from a position of you know privilege and opportunity already. They really limited worldviews and experiences. And even if they were a good teacher, those things are true. And so online education both creates access from a learner perspective, but also we have a new generation of teachers who probably would never have become teachers in an academic setting, right? Or even in a, in a, in a, in a corporate setting, um, they would not have followed a path to become a trainer. But I think the, the legitimization of training as a skill set and a platform for career development of an individual who's got a set of skills, you know, and historically it was you, you know, you get good at a thing and they make you a manager and you do less of the thing. And then there's that stupid old aphorism of those who can't do teach, which is nonsense because those who like those who are good at it then have to get good at teaching in order to be a good teacher. Right. Right. So, you know, I think getting into this, this period, this Renaissance, which I think you're totally right as the, as the low quality stuff, it's a signal and a noise problem, right? It's not that there's more bad stuff and less good stuff. There's just more stuff. Right. And it's harder to tell what's good marketing and lousy learning material. Um, and there's also tons of people who are great educators and suck at marketing their own courses. And that's just as much of a problem. Sure. So I think those are the kinds of things that need to stabilize in order to for all of those effects to be more widespread. But those are the things that get me really excited um, seeing different kinds of people in classrooms and learning things that were harder to learn before and seeing different people teach those things, uh, are, I think are some of the less commonly discussed major upsides of this world of online education. Yeah, definitely. And I, I really like that the point that you made about like people who may not have had any interest in teaching in a classroom or even in a corporate setting are now doing it because I think it's like anything, right? It's like a different medium and every medium has its own expectations of how you use that. It's the same with social media, right? Like you don't use Twitter and Instagram the same way you send different things. They have different vibes for, yeah. I, I hate that word, but it kind of but like, I think you're right. It's, it's a different sort of thing. And like teaching online might be much more appealing to someone. Cause it's like, you're not in the room with me right now. Like I'm in my living room, my cat's sleeping on the couch right now, but we're still having this conversation. And if we were to have a conversation in person, the expectations and the feeling around it would be completely different. I would still do it, but it would just feel a little bit different. Um, so it's just like an interesting point that I, you know, I, I feel like to your point, it, it hasn't really been discussed too often. Um, so it's just, a, it, it, I mean, it is, it's huge. It's kind of creating a generation or a group of educators that otherwise would never have become educators. I'll build on something you just pointed out. I had a specific example with a 30 by 500 student who uh, is, comes from such a fascinating industry. He's a uh, he's an expert in motorsports, mm. racing cars. 
And so he's got this like really deep domain knowledge and he's done tons of in-person work with helping race car drivers get good at being race car drivers. One of those things you don't think about, but of course there's somebody who's going to teach you how to get better at that. And so he's been applying our, our systems and our processes and building a, a business around it. It's been really, really cool to watch him adapt these things into a world that's, that's a little bit different. And he was doing most of this during the pandemic. So it was largely online education and recently did his very first in-person workshop that was actually repackaging some stuff from a webinar that he had done online. Uh, I think it was like a, even a, like a joint webinar type, one of those kind of deals. And he was super nervous about it because to your point, different space, even though I know the material, I've taught the material before, it's a different environment. Right. And of course he did great. It was He was nervous because it was new. Um, but when we were talking about it, he, you know, we, a bunch of things came out of that conversation where he's like, I'm not really sure if it was successful or not. And I said, well, talk to me about how it went. And he's explaining how, you know, online it's kind of expected to have a limited feedback loop. People have their cameras on, whatever it is. And that's a blessing and a curse, right? The curse is I lose that information. The blessing is I don't have to think about what they're doing on the other screen. Sure. You're in the room, you're seeing people's facial reactions. You have to make sure you're not, you know, you're reacting appropriately. But when he got to the part where he said people started asking questions and then other people in the room, it went from being like a, like an audience to teacher conversation to a group conversation. He's like, I never had that before. And it was awesome. And after that, multiple people came up, both from like people who are a little bit closer to me as a, a, a peer expert. You know, I have knowledge they don't, but they have knowledge that a bunch of other people in the room didn't either, as well as people who, who were more at the newbie end of the spectrum, all had the same positive comments about that particular piece of the learning experience. And he's like, I couldn't have planned for that. I didn't know it was going to happen. And what I, what I, what I responded, I was like, if you got that, then the rest of the experience worked right, right. Yeah. because the fact that people had good questions means doesn't mean that you left things out it meant that you had them engaged and they wanted to know more yes and so you know he's asking the question from a business perspective well how do i make these make sense you know i run a workshop for 20 25 people do i sell tickets do i do them for free and hope people upgrade to you know buy some videos or coaching or something along those lines and i said those are all options. You can experiment with them. I don't know what's going to work until you do more of it, but here's another reason to do more of it. What if you start taking other online webinars that you've already created and you do them in person on purpose once a quarter, a couple times a quarter, whatever it ends up being, plug into your local motorsports club, live other live events that are going on, how think about how different that room was for you now leaving that room with a deeper understanding of what other problems your learners want to learn about. How can you improve this material in ways that you wouldn't have noticed if you had been teaching it online and have all of that knowledge filter back into your online course. You can make your online courses better. You can make your marketing. Yes, you've got a virtuous cycle. Exactly. Yeah. And once that clicked for him, I said, if you make money from those live events, I'd consider that an, you know, a cherry on top. If you make the point of those live events to get the most high resolution interaction with learners that feed your paid material to be the best in the industry, 
you don't have to make money in the, off of those 30 people. Although the fact that you made a few sales, I'd say is, is a success. If you sell three or four thing, there are three or four people buy something after a 30 person workshop. It's like a, what, like a four or 5% conversion rate, something like that. Nobody on the internet gets four or 5% conversion rate from audience to sale. Doesn't exist. You did that in a room. Congratulate yourself for that. And then remember what else it gives you that isn't a transaction, but is absolutely value both for you as a business owner and educator. And most importantly, for the hundreds and thousands of other learners that are going to benefit from that thing you realized because you taught the thing live. Right. It just raises the base level of the entire course exactly. online and, and in person. And, exactly. and I think this is like a perfect segue for my next question, because you just talked about taking an online experience and bringing it offline or in person. And we had a conversation um, prior to, to the recording of this show. But in that first conversation, you said a few things that like really resonated with me. And one of them was if you try to bring an offline experience online, you lose. Um, and because we just kind of talked about the inverse of that, I'm curious, can you elaborate a little bit more on, on the flip side? If you take something that is, it starts in person and bring it online, you lose. What do you mean by that? So the other part of my world that we haven't really talked a whole lot about um, is Indie Hall, the co-working space that I've been running since, since 06. And Indie Hall is unusual in a, a lot of ways, but one of them is that We've always had an online community as part of what we do. A lot of co-working spaces have an online community that ends up feeling kind of like a bolt-on. It's, you know, maybe some little forum platform or something like that where members can post, you know, a little bit of self-promotion, a little bit, maybe, maybe an invitation here and there. But most of the time when I talk to people, both members of co-working spaces and people who run them, they say their online platforms are mostly the people who run the space telling everyone else about a thing that's happening. Right. Right. And what I generally posit is, you know, the fact that you're trying to take the, the offline experience of people coming together in a, in a physical space and sharing knowledge and putting it online and, and thinking the exact same thing is going to happen, um, you're probably going to be disappointed because... Yeah. What you, the step you skipped and what we have tried to do um, and the last couple of years gave us, boy, did it give us a, a push to try it even more, is to really kind of pull apart the pieces of why a successful offline experience is successful and go, well, how can I do the components of that online, but in a way that actually makes sense online? So, uh, you know, to, to give you a, a real concrete example, I think one of the hardest things to, to do is to like really recreate a sense of, you know, serendipity on the internet, right? For chaotic and serendipitous as the internet can feel, um, if it is your job to create an online experience where people can come in and feel like they're gonna bump into, you know, they're gonna overhear a conversation. I think about like, like cafe culture, right? Part of the benefit of being in a cafe or a co-working space is overhearing a conversation you didn't plan to have, or, um, you know, a couple of people talking about a thing and you, you chime in and that leads down the rabbit hole and maybe that turns into a new conversation, maybe it turns into a relationship. Now you know new things about each other. Those are the kinds of things that lead to potentially collaborations, exchanges, business exchange, all those kinds of things. It's really hard to create a version of that online that doesn't feel contrived. And I think a big part of that is because so many tools on the internet, including the one that we're using right now on Zoom, are designed for meetings. Yep. 
right? And so if your goal is to create a thing that is serendipitous, putting it into a tool that is designed for meetings, which are just a good meeting is usually not serendipitous. It is pretty structured and regimented, right? Everybody knows where they're supposed to be and there's a good agenda and someone's doing a good job of leading. When it comes to offline experiences, a lot of times the good stuff is not the thing that's happening in the meeting room, but it's the thing that's happening on the edge of the meeting room or the hall, like I got another great example, events. People go to conferences for a lot of reasons, but the memories they have from conferences are rarely a particular talk on stage. There are conversations in the hallway outside of the main hall where the talks are happening and things like that. Mm. So when all these online conferences popped up and it was talk after talk after talk after talk, and then people wondered why people, why their attendees were you know, exhausted. So because you didn't give them the thing that energizes them, which is not somebody on stage, it's the, the unexpected conversations with somebody else about the talk. So back in 2016, so way before the pandemic, I wanted to create an online conference for my fellow co-working peers. I've been to in-person co-working conferences around the world and realized that most people that run co-working spaces are too attached to their co-working space to travel to the other side of the world and meet co-working people from another country, another culture, whatever it is. So how do we take the best parts of a co-working conference and bring them online? And so at that point, Amy and I had been experimenting with that flipped classroom model of pre-recorded lessons and then live chat workshops and things like that. And so we borrowed from some of those ideas. And I said, we're going to pre-record all of the speaker talks. And we're basically going to, the conference is basically going to be a watch party. So I'm not going to have to worry about speakers, video and audio cutting out and all those kinds of things. But the real thing is, is when people sign up, the emphasis is going to be on the chat room. All of our energy during the day of the event is going to be creating a chat room experience where people can, can and are encouraged to react to the video, to share their favorite quotes, to dive in more deeply. And what ended up happening is basically we treated every single talk as the spark for a hallway conversation that happened in a channel that was associated with that video. And what was even cooler about that is we get to benefit from one of the uh, the beautiful things about the internet, which is that it's asynchronous, was that there's the, there's the synchronous conversation that's happening, but then I've got people joining from the other side of the world. Right. In their time zone, they get to scroll back. They watch the video, they scroll back, and they can now react to a conversation that had happened. So it's like a, it's like the hallway part of a, co a conference, but it's actually better because if you're not there in the hallway at a conference, you miss the whole conversation. But in the online version, we took the best parts of the hallway track and we made it so that you could show up to the hallway track late and still participate. Mm. And I think as, as a great, great example, like just thinking about why is an event valuable? People come and can often justify the cost because of the talks, some experts on stage, that's how they justify the expense. But the real thing that they leave with are the things that come out of those conversations. And so we designed, again, pre-pandemic, before, way before the Renaissance, um, an, an online experience that used the tools and their strengths to do a thing that an offline event couldn't do instead of trying to recreate an offline event online and dealing with, again, low quality uh, audio video or people struggling with time zones, all those kinds of things. And 
uh, I think that there's still so much room. Like, I think online events aren't going away, but I think the things that will stay will be the ones where people realize they can do something different yeah. than an offline event, ideally better. Maybe like take a piece of the offline event that's not great and figure out a way to make it better using the online sort of way of thinking and the online design patterns. And that way it's not just a, I think a lot of online events feel like the, the lesser version of their in-person event. And what I would love to see come out of the, the future of online events is some things where they, it, it's its own format. Yep. It's got its own set of design patterns that in a unique set of ways are better. They allow things that you couldn't do in person, even if you had all the money and all the resources, you literally couldn't do them because time and space only work the way they work. And then, and then perhaps the real magic becomes building communities of continuity between in-person events for people who can join them, online events for people who are experiencing them in their own way, in their own strengths, and then for people who are attending either to have places online where they can interact while they're waiting for the next one. For me, that feels like where the, the role the internet plays when it comes to events is not recreating offline, offline events online, it's creating better online events and then using the internet to connect the people when the events are not happening. Yeah. It's, I mean, it gets back to that point about just like being deliberate, right? Like looking at yeah. the, the, the landscape of the medium that you are delivering the information or operating within. And it's like, what are the strengths? What are the weaknesses? How do we, what are the trade-offs between those? Like to your point, like it's going to be the lesser version of an in-person experience. If you're just simply trying to recreate it note for note, it's not going to happen. Um, yeah. Uh, getting back to that, that first conversation, another thing that you had said to me, and, and I know that we're kind of coming up on time here. So, um, you said you don't want to, or you don't have to make the thing first, figure out who the audience is first, flip the process upside down. Don't build a thing that you think is helpful and then figure out how to talk about it. Talk about it first, figure out what the thing is that needs to be made. I thought that that was like, that kind of blew my mind a little bit. Um, is that the first step? Like, and if it's not like maybe what is, I think it's certainly early in the process, but is, is kind of talking about it and figuring out what needs to be made the first step. I think, and this is really at the heart of the 30 by 500 process, like 30 by 500 is a course, mm -hmm. but what we teach is, is sort of a, a systematic approach to accomplishing a number of things. Yep. And at the, the beating heart of 30 by 500 is this process that Amy, my partner invented called sales safari and sales safari is the evolution of that read the internet and take notes thing that I talked about at the beginning of our conversation today. But the, the reason you're doing it is what's important. The very first step is to understand another person, right? Whether you're creating a physical product, a digital product, a course, whatever it is. If you are starting with an idea and you can't tell me exactly who's going to buy it and like including what other kinds of things like it do they buy? What influences their buying decisions? I'm not talking about like demographics. I'm not saying like, you know, 35 to 45, you know, women on the East Coast of the United States, psychographics. What makes that person tick? 
how do you understand that person's worldview, how, how they perceive the world around them? How do you understand how they make decisions? How do you understand what other kinds of things they buy? If you start asking those questions after you have an idea in mind, you're kind of like a, a you know a square peg trying to figure out which hole it fits in. And you could do that for a while and you might hit it, but you also might end up forcing it through when if you had looked at what shapes of holes already exist and which is the easiest one for me, like, oh, I've already got, I don't need to make a thing, or this is the easiest thing for me to make for those people. So um, that's sort of the mindset that we try and reframe and flip people around is like, know who you're making it for and understand who they are and what problems they have and how they make decisions. So then you can use that to figure out what it is that they already want that they would buy if it was put in front of them, right? I think the step before that, uh, a lot of times folks will say like, you know, create your avatar or imagine your ideal customer. And I think those, those, the problem with those exercises, they send you down this path of creating a fantasy of a kind of person that you believe exists out there, but now you've got to go find that person. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think a really easy way to reorient that question is what kind of people are you already good at helping in some specific way? Could be what kind of people or what kind of problem and then what kind of people have that problem. Um, and then, and that can be more than one thing, right? If you were to make a brainstorm of like, who are all the people I can serve using the skills and knowledge that I have in a professional capacity, right? Make a big old list. And then you can whittle that list down on a couple of vectors, including which ones do I have any built-in advantages. Maybe I'm more knowledgeable in an area than another. Maybe I have some existing relationships or connections or credibility. Maybe I have a unique way of doing a thing that nobody else seems to do. Those are all potential advantages. And then you maybe want to remove some of the options like, do those people buy things when they need help? Or do they DIY everything, right? right? And that's not a binary, it's like either or, but like if you understand their buying habits, you know, if you pick, pick a, a customer base and go on Amazon, are there books that have thousands of reviews for that person? Then they probably buy stuff to learn new skills and get better at things. Are there other online courses? Are there conferences and events that they attend where the tickets are maybe hundreds or thousands of dollars? really great clues that they're people who spend money to better themselves compared to say uh, a couple of categories that often don't but are very popular are things like restaurant owners music venues artists and teachers love them got lots of friends that do those things but if you watched how they buy stuff they don't buy tools as a first instinct, and they certainly don't buy courses as a first instinct. So if that's your goal, it's a really, really hard selling point. So look at what are the things they buy. And then, you know, once you've whittled that big list down to a handful of options, look at them and go, do any of these stand out as one where I have any unique strengths or that particular audience seems 
you know, underserved or particularly hungry to better understand this? You know, are there movements in, 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 is it growing quickly? And through those kinds of questions, you can whittle down the big list to a couple of good options. And at that point, everything else being equal, it doesn't matter what you pick because you've removed the worst options from a bunch of things that are already probably decent options. And what's left are people who you have the best resources to find ways to serve. And all that's left is you investing the time and energy to listen and read and watch before you ever get on a phone call and are doing customer interviews with a stranger, right? Go look at what they're already talking about and, and, and see what you come back with. And I think when you do that, the expectations and beliefs of what you can create for them looks totally different. And you start relying less on, you know, air quotes, good ideas, and instead going, I know people have this problem, that problem costs them time or money, and they're actively looking for a solution because they're going on the internet and asking strangers, hey, strangers, I have this problem. Am I the only one? How do you solve this? And everyone's like, no, you're not the only one. Everything else sucks. Here's a thing I found. It fixes it kind of, but here's a bunch of ways. It's like, they'll tell you right, without a phone call. And not one person, but in aggregate, you can notice those patterns. And those are the patterns, I think, are, are really the, the insights that people are looking for, but they don't realize they're looking for. Mm -hmm. And when you have them, you will never be sitting and staring at a blank page going, what can I make that people would buy? You will have more things that you could make than you could actually make <laughs> with the time that you have. And so you basically have a lifetime of making things for this group of people, seeing them succeed, them going, that was great. And then you make in the next thing and they go, well, the last thing you made helped me. I'd, be, I'd love to buy the next thing. And they continue to level up. You level up along with them. That's how you build an ecosystem. And if you look at like kind of some of the most successful online course creators and on software businesses, like you can, it's tough to tell which ones were lucky, right? That's yeah. a tough thing to figure out in hindsight. But you can absolutely tell which ones have built an ecosystem of products by listening to people, understanding their problems, and then helping them, and then doing that over and over and over and over for not just weeks or months, but ultimately years. Like I said, we've been doing this for, for close to 15 years, and it's not slowing down. It's only growing, which means we can keep finding new versions of the problems and entirely new problems and solve those as well. Well, I think that's the formula right there. Um, and I can't think of a better way to, to kind of wrap up this conversation than, than that final word. Um, Alex, thank you so much for your time, for sharing your experience, your insights, your expertise. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I feel like we could have talked for, for hours longer, but um, I, yeah, thank you for being on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And uh, I, I look forward to hearing from, from you in the future, from, from listeners of the show who put any of this into, into motion. I uh, would love to hear how things went for you. Alex said something that bears repeating. Don't make the thing first and then determine how to market it or determine who the audience is. That makes things a little more volatile and difficult for you. Instead, figure out where the gaps are. 
Figure out where the problems are and the questions are first, and then make something that fills that in. Talk about the thing first. See what people are saying about it. Listen to the signals. Is there even a desire for that type of content or material? Is the problem actually being felt the way that you think it is? It's like the scientific method. Form a hypothesis and then test your hypothesis by talking about it. See how that plays. If there are conversations online about it, if there's an appetite for that type of content, then by all means, make it. But if you skip right to the content creation part without first determining the demand, well, that might not be the best bet or use of your time. And it certainly won't result in creating a strong customer experience for your audience. And that's our show. Thank you so much for your time and for listening. Thank you to Alex for talking with us. I'm Ernie. This is Plantasia. This has been Growth Decoded. And until next time, go forth and automate. Thanks for listening to Growth Decoded to Go. For the latest updates on Growth Decoded and links to the live show, you can sign up to be a part of the Grow team at activecampaign.com slash events slash growth hyphen decoded.